Cinephiles, audiophiles, ladies and germs, welcome to the Film Cult Podcast. Tonight, well, she's a member of the No Wave Cinema Movement that morphed into the Cinema of Transgression Movement. She's one of the most important filmmakers when you're looking at underground cinema. She's an integral, I guess, piece to this whole puzzle of the uh, amazing guests that I've already had. Focusing on the uh, cinema of transgression, but uh, here she is. It is Tessa Hughes Freeland. I've always wondered this from a lot of the cinema of transgression and the and the no wave filmmakers. Do you feel like progression is maybe more important than narrative structure or or getting a screenplay really down? Do you feel like just progressing a film forward is really key? When making a film, it's that's like the number one thing? Well, yes, the number one thing is getting the film finished and out there, yeah. Um, I'm not particularly attached to narrative. I don't make narrative films per se, but as you know, they do have a progression in somewhere or another. Um, I think I probably made a couple that have some sort of narrative to them, but you know, in terms of filmmaking, it's more important to... Uh, the films have a certain energy. There's a certain energy in the making of the films, and that's inherent in the film. So it's uh, about the energy of making films, getting them out there, showing them, and then moving on to the next idea, just keeping it going, you know, and get, having some momentum. You had a filmmaking background even before you started because didn't your father, like, wasn't he out there with a camera making films even when you were young? <laughs> yeah, that's right. He actually, he made um, home movies. He was obsessively making home movies. And, you know, that's where I actually think I got my first filmmaking experience. You know, I helped him make titles and I would help him edit sometimes. And, um, you know, he wouldn't do much editing, but, you know, help him stick them together a little bit. And, you know, just seeing him, you know, he was sort of directed the whole family a lot of the time. It was quite tedious, but, you know, we'd have to do it again. You know, oh, can you walk back there and do it again? Which is a little odd, but I think that's probably the nature of um, a lot of home movie making. And so, yeah, so that, you know, I grew up with that around me all the time, basically. Well, and when you when you started making films in New York, did you do you feel like that's when you started to incorporate this punk attitude and and really, I guess, becoming friends with a lot of musicians and later on you'd work with people like the Butthole Surfers. It's it's really this music connection through a lot of your work. Was it was it in New York or was it even long before that? Well, I had shot film before that but it wasn't really until I was living in New York that I started really making a lot of films with other people and the, you know creating this whole there was this whole um, community of filmmakers that occurred eventually you know but the, there were that's when I really started using Super 8 because originally I was shooting in 16 and um, I found Super 8 much more liberating it was more organic and um I work better with something that's handheld rather than something that's statically set on a on a tripod or, or you know, in the way that, something lighter. Yeah. So yes, I think um, that that's when the, you know, I got the sort of filmmaking bug, if you want to call it that, rather than 
shooting film. I'd worked on other people's films. I'd shot film. I made a film, at, you know, at high school, but it was uh, not really until I was here, came here, that I dedicated myself to it. Well, when did the music become a big part of your of your lifestyle, essentially? Was it, was it early on or did it come later? Well, music was always part of my lifestyle, but it didn't necessarily, wasn't necessarily combined with film. You know, when I came to New York, I worked for a record company um, and um, it was a, an English record company. And, you know, so I would get into see any band I wanted to in any club at any point in time. So, you know, basically at that time, um, my life surrounded nightclubs and music. And, you know, I was like a club person, basically. And um, I think if I look back on that time, that's how I identify myself as a nightlife person, basically. And and so there was an, a, an interdisciplinary um, act, uh, activity which gave birth to all kinds of things in the clubs. You know, there was no distinction between performers and filmmakers and musicians, but all of them were just a little bit separate from the art world because the art market is a thing unto itself, you know, but we did overlap, you know, and as often with history, you know, the, fil the filmmakers rise to the, well, the filmmakers work rises to the fore because people are fascinated to see you know, history and motion, basically, in some way. Do you feel like your films have been the most liberating of all of your art? Or where where do you feel like you've expressed yourself the best? What art form is it, actually? Mm, that's a good question. I think, it, I think that, yeah, film, I channel most of my creativity into film. Because I've also been, had a lot of... Um, experience as a writer I've written extensively about film and um, interviewed a huge amount of directors who I wanted to interview and meet and that was really really has been thrilling but you know and that's creative to a to a degree and I've never really done a lot of creative writing but I think um, you know in a way I see film as a as a sort of poetry so there is a language involved in it for me and um you know, an iconographic language as well as, you know, incorporating words into it occasionally, into film occasionally. Um, otherwise, you know, I, I do take quite a lot of photographs, but I think that ultimately it's the moving image that, that you know, gets me ex more excited than anything else. So I think that's where I would have to say that most of my creativity is, is set. I like that you mentioned other directors because... Of all of the cinema of transgression artists, you seem to have the most, I guess, rooted in, in classic film from, from the silent days all the way till probably like the 1940s. You have that sensibility that those early filmmakers had and you were bringing that to the cinema of transgression, which I think is why your films look different than everybody else's. You can look for everybody from Beth B to Nick Zed their films look very different than yours. And I'm wondering, did you have like this film knowledge growing up? Were you always thirsty for it? Were you looking for more? How much did film play a role growing up? Um, quite a lot, actually. I used to um, live not too far from Pinewood Studios. And um, 
you know, so I had a lot of friends whose parents worked at Pinewood and um, I would get to go there and play on the sets of different films. Like I went to see the huge, the huge, um, um, what was it? It's the, for, it was for Goldfinger. There was this huge in, interior of a volcano. So we went to see that. And, you know, then I got to play on the set of the devils at some point. And that was where, you know, as you, as you probably know, most of the hammer horror films were shot and I would see them shooting those occasionally in this park nearby called Black Park. And they would be shooting day for night. You know, I would be riding there and, um, you know, the carriage, a carriage would come charging through the woods. You know, it was, it, was, it was fascinating to me. And I was a great fan of Hammer Horror films as well growing up. So, you know, um, then I did study... I have a history of art background and a cinema studies background as well. So I have a, a, a pretty extensive knowledge of film history. And I like to play with uh, the irony of different genres. So, you know, and I do have a, a weakness for, uh, for silent films. And, um, you know, I'll pastiche various um, directors. Little, they'll take little pieces, little references and throw them into my films at different times. And I don't know if people notice them or not, but I like them. <laughs> well, working with your contemporaries, when you came to somewhere like New York, would you say, I guess that the rest of the world has more of an appreciation for film or at least film history and film knowledge than your contemporaries at that time. Did you notice that? Or would you say the complete opposite? I think I think everybody has a different aesthetic and, you know, everyone is valuable. You know, I know that, um, for instance, Nick said was obsessed with comic books. So that was part of his aesthetic. And Beth was uh, interested in I'm not quite sure what her aesthetic was, but I think, you know, it, it was a different aesthetic. And and Richard Kern's aesthetic was was very uh, contemporary. He, you know, he comes from a photographic background so he was working with a saturated light at different angles and you know a lot of those angles came about from working in a tiny space because you know we have tiny apartments here in New York so how to get most in the frame would require climbing up a ladder sometimes and um let me think who else <clears throat> um Kimberly Fala had her own style too you know that came out of her performances and um she was influenced by um, Japanese kabuki, I think, to a degree, along with other California, um, as long as well as the um, actionists, the German, the Viennese actionists. You know, in terms of of body, um, what's the, what, what am I trying to say here? Um, in terms of endurance, physical endurance. So everybody comes from a different discipline, but we all kind of got together and um, did stuff, you know, made films together and um, showed them together, basically. How do you feel like the cinema of transgression movement has gone through, throughout the years? Do, do you think that it's still maybe alive and well and we're not really seeing it nowadays? Do you think that it is maybe dead and, and is completely done? What is your feelings on it? Well, that's a really good question. I think there's a lot of derivative work. I think that, you know, this is probably this neo-cinema of trans, neo-transgressive movement. I'm not quite sure. But, you know, I think that it's really 
um, saturated. You know, we were working at a time where there weren't that many film festivals. Now every town or village in the world has a film festival practically, or maybe multiple ones. And also, of course, there's the internet, which gives a lot more exposure to everybody in terms of um, what they're showing and what they're, they're seeing as well. So their influences can be um, much more in terms of, uh, there's much more in terms of information. So I don't know whether that creates more of a homogenous style or, or not, but I think that, um, I think that transgression, I don't know, actually, that's a good point. I think that, that you know, that the, well, let's, let's, let me define it this way, the type of transgression that um, we were working with is no longer appropriate. <laughs> and I think that, you know, uh, the, the, the trigger warnings are multiple. And, uh, you know, I've had screen, a screening entitled trigger warnings to sort of poke fun at that. But I think that... You know, there is, a, there is a core of an underground somewhere that's into um, some extreme cinema, yeah. Well, do you think that the world has gone in the right direction? Do you think that we've maybe gone a little bit back? Where do you see America going from here? Our filmmaking in general going from here? Do you think that we need radical filmmakers again? Frankly, another movement. Well, it's really hard to generalize because there are so many different types of, of cinema, you know. I mean, in terms of um, narrative film and, um, you know, independent filmmaking, I think it's become terribly um, middle of the road. And, you know, there aren't many radical filmmakers who are um, crossing over into indie work, if there are any, in the underground there, you know. Um, I think, you know, I mean, politically, everything's going in a circle. It's circling back. Um, and, and, you know, it, so much of it is tied up with economics as well. And, the, you know, filmmakers or actors and actresses are uh, sort of more in, interested in being a part of a seven-part series rather than a feature film. And people are more interested in watching things on their computer than going to the cinema. It's not, it doesn't have the same um, attraction, although... You know, um, I think that people do like to get together and in the shrine of the cinema somewhere, but I'm not quite sure where it's going to go. It's a difficult, um, difficult thing to imagine. There are so many different parts to it. You know, I, I think that maybe you know, cinema, a great cinema movement, will come from somewhere else. Maybe it'll come from Africa or Asia but I don't think it'll be dominated by Hollywood anymore. I think Hollywood is kind of on the downturn. One thing that you always did well was grabbing like archival footage and making it your own. How hard was it to acquire all of this footage back in the day, let alone now? I feel like it has to be harder and harder and harder to get your hands on archival footage at this point. No. Well, um, there are ways and means, you know, I think back that it came about out of necessity, actually, because there was a time where I had no money to buy film. And um, I was I've given all this porn footage from the porn shops on 42nd Street, because at that moment they were switching over from film to video. And so I was given a whole lot of film for free. And then I would buy those small 10 minute reels which were ultimately intended for home viewing there were 10 minute reels of hollywood films 
and odd odd things like uh, newsreels and uh, um, cartoons. Somewhat, I wasn't really wasn't really using them, but mostly ten minute versions of of Hollywood films, westerns and classics with subtitles, black and white mostly. And I like to work with black and white with the found footage because you can manipulate it better and mix it. And now, actually, you know, it's actually you got the whole internet to find footage if you want it. You know, it's like a whole lot more. But um, yeah, I don't, I don't feel that uh, I've run out of options for finding footage at all. And I find stuff on the street. I found a copy of the Sorrow and Pity, Sorrow and Pity on the street. You know, a reel of this, a roll of that, a roll of Tarzan too. You know, so there's all kinds of stuff I come across all the time. You're still finding reels of film on the street? Yeah, yeah. There was a whole pile. You know, people throw stuff out. There was a huge pile of 60 millimeter films on the street, like two blocks from my house. That's, that, that is was, the dream. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> yeah, it's unusual. It's unusual because, you know, it. I used to go to a lot of flea markets and thrift stores and stuff. And there the pickings have got much slimmer for sure. But, you know, just sort of junk like that. It's a rare find, but occasionally, you know, it'll happen. That was a whole lot of 16 millimeter film, which is great actually. Well, you mentioned everything's available online now, but do you like working with digital film? Would you not prefer to have it in your hands and, and cut that up yourself? much prefer to be able to touch it than to than to uh download it or something you know that I actually take it from you know I've always done a lot of re-photography and I made this film with an artist called Rhonda Zvillinger um called Rhonda Goes to Hollywood and that was a mixture of slides film and video and I would shoot I would rent the uh VHS tapes and I would play them and then I would shoot with Super 8 from the screen. And then I would put it back onto video and then I would shoot it again. And the so that had a lot of process in processes involved in it. And, you know, with it, there was always some sort of deterioration, disintegration, or some kind of weird, or some scrolling or something. So I would work with it. So, you know, I, I can usually find a way to work with things that, that, um, that works for me, but I do, Tech, I really prefer the feel of film. And, you know, since um, it's become so remote in a way, recently I've been working a lot with handmade film, working directly with obsolete graphic mediums like Letraset directly onto the film and handmaking slides. Do you feel like a film should ever be finished? I feel like your generation is one that hates, truly hates looking back at their old work but you kind of want to do something to it every time that you do see that old work. Am I right on that? Uh, that's actually a good question. You know, I, I feel that. Yes. And I mean, I, I do. Yes. To yes. To two things that I do hate. I don't really hate it, but it's difficult. I find my, watching my old work quite difficult, especially in front of an audience. But what I do appreciate is the concept that, you know, None of film, my filmmaking is never really finished. When I think about the live projections that I do and um, the um, found footage material, you know, it's endless. Basically, it's endless, and and it can be there can be a different 
combinations and different permutations of those of those films, and um, I'll repeat pieces or, or combinations of images f- for in one film and then in another one, maybe you know five years later. Um, and I have my favorite films and I have my favorite pieces. It's it's a you know it's a strange um, thing, but I'm a, have affection for certain certain scenes in films, certain combinations. And so I don't think I'll ever be finished, you know, until the day I die, basically. But there'll be lots of different sort of uh, things, or pieces of, will be films that I leave behind, yeah. In the moment, what would you say the hardest film that you ever worked on was? And really, what did you learn the most from the hardest times of making all of the films? Mm, I think I mean they're all kind of easy and fun you know but I don't I wouldn't know if it was hard I wouldn't do it you know I, I think it's I think it's it has to be fun so let me think okay probably you know I've I about uh I made a 60 millimeter film that I started in the um 90s and I finished recently <laughs> it took me probably took me 20 years to finish. And the reason being was that I shot it in 16 millimeter. And what turned out to be the hardest thing for me was that, you know, I'd imagined this film, I I storyboarded it, then we shot it. And um, to me, the hard, it was sort of a bit, a bit boring because then I was just recreating what I'd seen originally in my mind, you know, in editing it. So, in a way that was, you know, I, I, li- I like the film, but in a way it was kind of the most boring in terms of process and that it didn't really make itself in the way that a lot of other films do that have more spontaneity involved in the shooting and in the execution. You know, you never know what you're going to get back when you get your film back from the lab if you're spontaneous. But if you really thought about it, it you know, the rushes should be the way that they were the rushes can be the way that they were imagined, which is, you know, how Hollywood works. They can't afford to mess it up too much. But I like the freedom of being able to, to move around and, and, you know, to be spontaneous. I hope that answers your question. Of course. The, the <laughs> early days, a lot of, well, I guess you were working a lot out of bars and showing your films in, in, in I guess, stranger kind of venues than maybe we would get right now even though <laughs> there's a film festival where I live that started in a bar. So it's, it is still kind of happening, but do you see filmmaking maybe going down that route? And do you, are, are you kind of hopeful for art house cinemas to stick around over the next few years? Oh, I certainly hope so. I think that people, you know, if, if people like to go out and see films at midnight, then art house cinema Mars will continue to exist. And, you know, the models where, They've introduced, um, you know, food and drink in the cinemas. That's that's a good one too, because that's closer to being in a bar or being in a club where you can move around and, you know, it's not so static. There's something difficult about being in a room of silent people. It's, you know, that, that's a little bit awkward sometimes. I like a, a more active environment and, you know, people will watch the films or they won't, but the... Um, whole fun about showing them in the club was that you never knew quite what was going to happen. I mean, it didn't really matter what happened, but, you know, and, and, and that people could um, hang out and drink and, and have a good time, basically. Did you find yourself 
I guess, trying to be as creative as you could during this unprecedented year and a half that we just had? What were you sitting there itching? I need to just create during this time. Or did you kind of take a step back during, during the pandemic and, and maybe just hit the brakes a little bit? Hit the what a little bit was the last bit of the question. Hit, hit the brakes a little bit. Hit the brakes. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, you know, it's, I'm sort of like a seasonal worker, actually. <laughs> I was, I did, um, I created a sort of a, a studio in my attic. And uh, what I did was uh, I was asked to um, be part of this live event that was going to be, I was going to do these live projections. And they, in turn, were going to be projected on a dancer in Spain, I think, and the music was going to come from somewhere else. So it was going to be a, a large technical um event but it didn't happen because it was too it was technically too complicated everybody needed to have all kinds of equipment that they didn't necessarily have but nonetheless it got me working and I I, I played around and um and I was fairly creative I made this this piece it's a live performance piece that in turn I've been um turning into a single channel piece and um then I've been planning working on another um another um installation film that's going to be hopefully i'm trying to it's yeah it's it's a sort of pair to a film that i made in 2019 that was in a gallery called um otherwise that was made up of three films as an installation piece so i've been working on that as well and in the midst of winter i did nothing except try to stay warm and um read basically so Well, finally, going back to something that you said a little bit earlier about you interviewing filmmakers yourself, what would you say some of the, if not the most important thing that you learned from, from your time interviewing them was? Um, well, that's a really difficult question. What was, what did I learn? I suppose I learned that Filmmaking was not technical at all. That the that the that the um, the drive behind filmmaking was more based in was based more in something in, in a drive that comes from a creative drive that comes from an energy other than from the same place that, that literature, poetry and, and music comes from, you know, that is not technical basically, but then it has that layer on top of it, how to, you know, that's a, an additional layer, but the main part of it I discovered from interviewing all these directors came from a, a creative energy that had a source in another place. Well, Tessa, Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Your work has influenced generations. It's going to continue to influence generations. You are one of the most important filmmakers in the cinema of transgression movement, the no wave movement, New York filmmakers in general. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you for listening. This concludes our broadcast day.